This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. It is seven minutes past nine o'clock here in Middletown, Connecticut. Welcome to a Tuesday morning wake-up call on Sports Country Radio. We appreciate you spending a few minutes with us this morning. Uh, plenty to talk about. Uh, lots of baseball last night, obviously. The Red Sox did not play. Um, we'll get to all that in a minute. But it, we woke up this morning to breaking news that the CDC – and the FDA have recommended a pause in the use of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine over the reports that there have been some blood clot issues. Um, and they say they are doing this out of an abundance of caution. Now, here is my only case with this. And if you look, for the people that have suffered these blood clots, obviously it's tragic. There, you know, there's a woman that's in critical condition. I get all that. There have been six cases. Six cases in seven million doses of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine that have been given. And yet they are putting a pause on this because of six cases. Now, statistically that doesn't even, you know, move the needle. And again, I'm not trying to minimize the people that have had blood clots, but like with other things, you wonder it's, it's, it may not be the vaccine At all. Listen, here's an example. In the the United States, every year, there are between 500 and 1,000 cases per million people of women experiencing blood clots because of the birth control pill. Between 500 and 1,000 Per 1 million, we're talking about six cases in 6.8 million, and they're putting a pause on it. The people that are smokers, there's like 1,800 cases of blood clots for every 1,000 smokers. 1,800 per 1,000. This is six people out of 6.8 million. People that had covid the number of blood clots was off the charts. It was over 100,000 per million. So what are we doing? We are already struggling to try to get people to take the vaccines so that we can get this thing under control, so we can get some kind of herd immunity. 
And now the FDA and the CDC who are behind this push to get people to take the vaccinations are throwing a monkey wrench into the gears and grinding things to a halt with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine for six cases out of 6.8 million doses. The level of stupidity here is mind-boggling. This is media-driven because the media loves doomsday. The media loves to point out the absolute worst things that can happen. And so we're going to have people panicking that they could get a blood clot from the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And then people are going to say, well, if I could get it from Johnson and Johnson, why couldn't that same thing happen for Pfizer and, and uh, Moderna? You know, I mean, this is the issue here. You are you're on the one hand, you know, we're doing this big push to get people vaccinated. On the other hand, you're scaring the crap out of them. And what about the people, (laughs) you know, Savannah Guthrie, I was watching the Today Show this morning. Savannah Guthrie pointed out, uh, listen, I have a friend who just got the vaccine, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine yesterday. You know, so, you know, what do you say to those people? You know, six cases out of 6.8 million people. I can't emphasize that enough. You have to, with every medical procedure, with everything in life, there is a chance that something can go wrong. But six out of 6.8 million is so infinitesimal as to... Why it's even being taken into consideration to me is beyond it, beyond. So we're going to pause, but what is this going to do to the momentum that the country had picked up in terms of the vaccines? I mean, you know, we're getting record numbers of people vaccinated every day, and now you do this. And on the heels of that, and this had already been, this this decision had already been made, and the Johnson Johnson thing just happened this morning. It was literally breaking news as I got up this morning. The AP wire had it, like I had been up for five minutes, and the AP had it. Um, here in the state of Connecticut, Wesleyan University, which is just up the road from from our uh, our studio here, is now going to require all students to receive the coronavirus vaccine before arriving to the campus in the fall. They become the first school in the state of Connecticut to require that. Look, Rutgers University in New Jersey, Brown University, Rhode Island, uh, Northeastern in Massachusetts are some that have, uh, have done this. There are other schools that have done it as well. But Wesleyan becomes the first one here in the state of Connecticut. Even UConn. UConn's strongly encouraging it, but they aren't requiring it. But now Wesleyan has said you can't come back if you don't get it. Now, what I don't know is whether or not um, they can stay as part of the uh, student body and do distance learning. And my guess is they they can. Um, And the funny part is Wesleyan said that nearly uh, 2,000 of their students have signed up for a clinic uh, to get the vaccine 
on April 24th and 25th. Well, guess what vaccine they were going to get, folks? You got it, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So now you got 2,000 kids signed up to get the vaccine at, at the local community health center, and now that vaccine's been put on hold. Oh, boy. Um, but it says students who are currently uh, or studying remotely or, uh, or on leave or unable to go to this clinic uh, have to get a vaccine. Um, you know, look, and, and the president of the university said, look, uh, he said that this will get us closer to achieving that th- this herd immunity. It'll also improve our chances of enjoying a more quote unquote normal semester. And he said, look, you know, I'm looking forward to getting to the point where we can get back to, uh, having our regular kind of, uh, social, interactions rather than social distancing he said we're not there yet but with if if we if we do the work and we all cooperate you know and you know with some good luck he said we should get there so this brings up the next question if wesleyan university is doing this and other universities are doing this what happens next you know there's been a lot of talk about uh vaccine passports, so to speak. If you want to travel somewhere, you have to prove that you've been vaccinated. You know, now in the sports world, you know, Major League Baseball is encouraging their teams to all get vaccinated and have said anybody that gets to that 85% number, you know, they'll relax the COVID restrictions on that particular team. So there's been some incentive, but it hasn't been mandated. What happens when we get to a point uh, you know, my wife, Barbara, works for Home Depot. She's, you know, a manager for Home Depot. What happens if Home Depot says to their employees, you have to get vaccinated or you can't work here? Now, the Missouri House yesterday just passed up or uh, advanced a bill that would ban private businesses from requiring proof of vaccination from either employees or customers. But we're going, you know, if, if this pandemic doesn't get under control soon and and everybody is in a a rush to get back to normal we're going to get to a point where there are going to be businesses that are going to say you can't come in here unless you show your passport you know bring your vaccination card with you you know and that is a very slippery slope that is i guess you could say discriminatory um now one of the representatives in missouri said hey look you know he said, you know what? Business owners have a right to do that. Now, under this Missouri bill, if it passes, they wouldn't. But right now, private businesses have the right to do that. He said, and you know what? We also have the right to not shop there if they require that. So, you know, but there is a lot of fear among people in this country that all of a sudden the government is going to require these passport vaccines, individual states or the federal government. You know, it's going to be like in Nazi Germany. We want to see our papers. You know, honest to God. I mean, there are people that have a real fear of that. And so now you have universities saying you can't come back without it. Now, they're not saying you can't be a student there. So I I suspect that you can still be part of the distance learning uh, routine, but you can't be on campus without that vaccination. It's just a matter of time before somebody sues one of these schools and says you can't do that. It hasn't happened yet, but it, at least not that I know of. But I think we're not far away from that. 
So, um, uh, other COVID-19 news, the Chicago Cubs are concerned about an outbreak on their team. Uh, they had two coaches uh, that tested positive. Chris Young, their bullpen coach, and their first base coach, Craig Driver, uh, both tested positive. Uh, three relief pitchers, Brandon Workman, Jason Adam, and Dan Winkler, were all placed on the COVID-19 injured list yesterday. Um, don't know whether it was a positive test or whether it was for contact tracing because they were around the bullpen coach, Chris Young. Um, but they're obviously concerned. We saw what happened with the Vancouver Canucks. They're hoping after a uh, almost two-week stop to be able to resume their season on Friday, but there's still no guarantees. It's going to depend on the continued negative tests, you know, before they're going to be allowed to do that. So uh, anyway, you know, I just don't understand the the pause on the Johnson & Johnson for six cases out of 6.8 million you know, maybe you, you can call me an insensitive jerk if you want to, but at the end of the day, that is an, a, a, a negligible risk. You know, uh, let me tell you, here's the deal. Uh, if somebody said to me tomorrow, I'll give you a million dollars if you'll stand outside with a lightning rod in your hand in a, in a thunderstorm. The odds of you getting hit are one in a million, but would you do it anyway? For a million dollars, I would. One out of a million chance, even if you know, because if it's six out of six point eight million, so you one out of a million, yeah, I take that risk. And if it's one, you know, one chance out of a million that I'm going to have a complication from a vaccine, but getting the vaccine is going to save my life, you bet your rear end I'm going to get it. And now you know you're gonna put you're putting this whole thing in doubt by doing this. It just makes no sense, and I still think it's media driven. Not this media, but you know the big time media, you know CBS and NBC. I mean, they live for this stuff. You know, they salivate. You know, as soon as they get, so, oh, this is a juicy one. You know, and that's what drives this, unfortunately. Uh, all right, uh, the Red Sox were supposed to play the Minnesota Twins yesterday. Did not play. Uh, it was supposed to be an afternoon game. I turned on the game at five minutes to two to news that it had just been postponed. There has been no makeup date given. They're supposed to play a four-game series this week against the Twins, all-day games, Monday through Thursday. Why was the game postponed yesterday? Well, as you can imagine, they were playing the Minnesota Twins in Minneapolis. They just had another shooting of a young black man by the police, um, this time in Brooklyn Center. And it appears that it was accidental. If you've seen the body cam uh, footage, it was a woman that did the shooting, and she kept saying that she was going to taser the guy and ended up shooting him because she pulled the wrong weapon out, and then you hear her go, oh, my God, I just shot him. Now, I'm going to say this. Um, I've held a handgun. I've held a taser. There's a big difference in the weight of a taser and the feel of a taser than there is of a 38 or a 9mm, whatever they're carrying uh, in, in Brooklyn Center. There's a big difference. So, you know, and I get, you can say, you know, adrenaline, et cetera, et cetera. Look, here's the deal. The police aren't allowed to make mistakes. You know, they are in a position, they are in a, uh, profession where there is a there's almost zero tolerance for mistakes. It's like being a surgeon. You can't go, oops, I cut I cut the wrong 
I cut the wrong person open or I, or I took out the wrong organ or I cut the wrong vein or, you know, you, 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 there is very little room for error. This was not a George Floyd thing. This was not kneeling on somebody's neck. This seemed like it was a situation that got out of control. Uh, they had the kid out of the car. The kid then, you know, jumped back in his car, was trying to get away. You know, supposedly he had expired tags. They found out there was some kind of a, uh, a warrant out for his uh, outstanding warrant for his arrest. So the kid tried to get away. You know, and it sounds like this just escalated from a routine stop to, you know, an accidental discharge. Well, it wasn't accidental discharge. It was I pulled the wrong weapon. Uh, but at the end of the day, the police don't have that luxury. And I'm not going to go on a rant against the police. And we've, you know, look, what happened to George Floyd? There is no defense, period, the end. I don't care whether you support the police or not. There is no defense for what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd. There is no excuse to, for what the police did. Did you see the footage of the kid, uh, the guy that's serving in our military that got pulled over by cops? I think it was in Maryland. And the guy had the, uh, the uh, soldier had his cell phone running the whole time so you can see and hear everything that went on. And he was very respectful basically of like, you know, why are, why are you doing this? And the guy, you know, basically a guy threatened to, to shoot him. And uh, wouldn't explain anything. Was belig- the, guy, the police officer ended up getting fired when it came to light. I mean, it was just brutal. So, you know, that kind of stuff, there is no excuse for this was a mistake. It appears in Brooklyn Center. It does not appear that this was any kind of uh, racial thing. I get it. It was a young black kid. I get that. And it's it's wrong. And it's wrong if it happens in Brooklyn Center, which is even worse because it's 10 miles from where things happen with George Floyd. And it's a, it's a tinderbox right now with the Floyd trial going on. It's the last thing that area needed. But it's no different than if it happened in my town. You know, it's going to, it's a sensitive topic. And folks, they just don't have any margin for error, you know, and right or wrong in this environment, the police are being held to a very high standard as they should be, frankly, you know, you know, we've seen a lot of instances where there are police that, that, uh, you know, take the whole thing a little bit too far and it becomes a power trip for them. But the thing is, is that that is a, small, small percentage, 99% of the cops in this country, good people and trying to do the right thing. And to me, what happened in Brooklyn center wasn't malicious. It got out of control and things went South, but it didn't seem like it was, uh, uh, any kind of malicious thing, but the Minnesota twins and the Red Sox decided in light of what had happened, it would just happen the previous night. It was all kind of unrest that it wasn't a good idea to play the game and you can't argue with that the minnesota wild the hockey team was supposed to play last night they did the same thing minnesota timberwolves were supposed to play the new jersey the brooklyn nets last night they postponed their game as well no word whether the red sox will play today or not they're scheduled for an afternoon game there was violence in the area overnight obviously people protesting what had happened and of course as you know those always get out of uh got out of hand so uh no word on whether they'll play today or not there's been no makeup date um 
there was some thought that there might be a doubleheader at some point, but that has not uh, been announced yet. So uh, we'll see. And, you know, uh, Aaron Hicks, who plays for the New York Yankees, uh, asked to come out of the lineup for the Yankees last night. Uh, he was drafted by the Twins, played his first three professional seasons in Minnesota. Now, you know, he's moved on since then, but he's also a black man that is, you know, that lived in that area, and this hit him hard. And he asked for the night off, and, you know, Aaron Boone gave it to him, and as he should have. I mean, what are you, you going to do? Um, so that uh, that's where we're at as far as <laughs> – <laughs> the the news that some semi semi sports news but uh uh and i don't know where we go from here folks i mean you know i don't know the, the whole race thing the whole police issue it's not going to go away overnight you know and i i don't know where we go but at some point you know we start people pay attention when sports shuts down should sports be the one to draw attention to this no i was actually surprised last night though that more teams didn't decide to take the night off you know if you remember after the whole George Floyd thing and everything there were there was a lot of teams and almost entire leagues that shut down for the days the NBA you know particularly um you know in protest slash support slash raising awareness and you know the thing is is that you know Sports has a very large pulpit, and you know if if they can use it for change, that that's a good thing. You know, it's there to entertain us, yes, but it's also there to let us know that hey, these are people; these aren't just you know, uh, you know, puppets. You know, and you know, the majority of the NBA is filled with people of color, and if the NBA can stand up and say, you know. We're, we're not going to stand for this anymore. And the NBA shuts down, you know, it helps raise awareness and not a bad thing. And, and again, as far as, you know, the, the hockey team and the baseball team not playing yesterday was absolutely the right thing to do. It would have been tone deaf had they, uh, had they played yesterday. It's 28 minutes past. Yeah. We're going to take a break. When we come back. We'll talk about some stuff that actually happened on the fields and on the courts last night. You're listening to the wake up call on sports country. It's 30 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the wake-up call here on a Tuesday morning. So a very poignant moment yesterday uh, in the MLB. And I I don't want to get carried away with this. It's not like, you know, it's like the conquering hero returning home. But A.J. Hinch, the former manager of the Houston Astros, returned to Houston last night as the manager of the Detroit Tigers. Of course, this is after his year-long suspension from the cheating scandal that went on uh, with the Astros, the whole garbage can thing. And uh, uh, before, obviously, the game started, the media wanted to talk about it. Of course they're going to talk about it. And the one thing I will say about A.J. Hinch, above everybody else that was involved in this thing, and I mean everybody, A.J. Hinch is the one person and I'm and I'm and I'm going to say even above Alex Cora. Alex Cora has been, uh, you know, the manager of the Red Sox has been uh, uh, contrite and understands, you know, what went on and why it went on. And you know, he took his medicine and he he's not arguing. But AJ Hinch is the guy to me that has stood up from day one and he said, "Look, it's I take it seriously. 
I, I want to apologize not only to Houston fans, but the fans around baseball and, and continue to repeat how wrong it was. He said, uh, I'm going to have to live with that for the rest of my career. It's part of my story. You know, and uh, uh, he said, look, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to continually show how contrite I am for being the manager. I was the one and, and how how wrong it was. He said, obviously, I served a punishment. I was out of baseball for a year. I mean, Hinch has been upfront about it. And he has taken a lot less grief for this than a lot of the players have because the players have never admitted anything. The players have got, you know, skated. So he comes back to Houston last night with the Detroit Tigers. Prior to the game, when he's introduced, he gets a standing ovation from the crowd. The team actually played a, uh, a video a tribute to him on the, the big screen out in center field. And the last frame said, thank you, AJ. And, you know, and the people were going nuts. He came out on the field. He tipped his cap. He said it was very emotional. They had told him it was going to happen, but he said he, you know, he knew he had to come out and tip his cap, but he says, he was like, you know, uh, you know, I just wanted to get back in a dugout before I showed too much emotion. And, uh, so, I mean, it was a nice touch. No question. And again, I give him a lot of credit. He was the guy at the head and he knew he could have stopped it. He didn't stop it. He knew he should have stopped it and he didn't. And he knew that, and he knows that it was wrong. And, and if I said this from day one, if Jose Altuve and Carlos Correa and, and Bregman and all those big guys had stepped up and said, you know what? Yep. We were trying to get an edge. We were wrong. We're sorry. We shouldn't have done it. We get it. All they had to do was that. And yeah, people would have still been upset, but not to the degree they are now. Yet these players never did that. And that's where I think most people have the problem. A.J. Hinch uh, did, took his medicine, and uh, and got... A warm welcome back to Houston, and look, and and he should. They won a world. He got him to a world championship. You you know whether it was the cheating was involved or not. You know how much that led to it. Who knows? But at the end of the day, uh, it was a nice feeling for AJ Hinch after everything he's been through with this whole cheating thing. Uh, it was a nice moment, and to make it even better, if you're AJ Hinch, your Detroit Tigers go out and beat the Astros yesterday in your return, beat them six to two. Uh, their young uh, phenom pitcher, Casey Mize, got his first major league victory. Seven shutout innings. He gave up just four hits, struck out five, walked two. And uh, the Tiger batters got to Zach Granke. Granke didn't even get out of the fifth inning. He just he gave up ten hits, six runs, three bombs. Uh, it was just ugly. Um, he threw, you know, Granky threw 27 pitches in the first inning. They didn't score off him, but that was just a precursor of what was to come. And, uh, and, and the young kid, uh, Badu, another home run, Akil Badu. What a great story this kid has been for Detroit. He had another home run last night. Um, and he continues to amaze. He's hitting 368 to start the season. 368. He's already hit three home runs. I mean, you know, he's 22 years old, and he's just so stupid he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. <laughs> and it's working. So great. It uh, must have been a great thing, great feeling for uh, for A.J. Hinch. So good for him. Uh, that series will return today. Jake Odorizzi will get the start for Houston. Uh, Matthew Boyd, who has pitched well for Detroit early in this season, 
uh, will get the start for the Tigers. And hey, look, you know the Tigers aren't going anywhere. They're four and six. Houston six and four, but Houston got off to a six and one start. They've now lost three in a row. So uh, AJ and the Tigers will try to keep that rolling tonight. Uh, locally, the Yankees with a win yesterday. Um, you knew they were going to win this game. Garrett Cole was pitching. Of course they're going to win. And Cole was very good. He gave up a run uh, in the first inning. And, you know, it was his own fault. A walk, wild pitch, you know, run scores. He ends up giving up just uh, three hits and a run. Struck out eight, walk one over six innings. Uh, was dominant. He retired, I believe, the last 15 batters that he faced. Struck out seven of those 15 um, he's got 29 strikeouts in his first three starts. That actually uh, ties a Yankee record for the most strikeouts through your first three appearances of a season. He ties David Cohn with that record. And then the Yankee bullpen does what it did. Uh, Aroldis Chapman was filthy in the ninth inning. Chapman's got a new pitch this year, which is just what he, he can already throw 102 miles an hour. Well, now he's added a uh, a splitter to his repertoire. Just what they needed. Uh, by the way, Robbie Ray got his first start uh, after starting the season on the injured list for Toronto and didn't pitch badly. He went five innings, only gave up three hits, a couple of runs. Um, the big blow off of him was a two-run shot by uh, Kyle Higashioka. Higashioka actually hit two home runs in this game. <laughs> uh, he's kind of the personal catcher for Garrett Cole. It won't be a steady thing, but he's going to catch Cole more often than not. They just work very, very well together. So Higashioka with two home runs last night. And the Yankees beat the Toronto Blue Jays by a final of 3-1. to one. The Mets were scheduled to play last night. The Mets were actually intelligent last night and decided not to play. 24 hours after that mess that happened uh, on Sunday, or, uh, yeah, on Sunday when they were going to uh, try to play, despite the fact everybody that even wasn't a meteorologist knew rain was coming and they got exactly seven minutes and nine pitches into the game before the umpires banged it, uh, made the decision yesterday afternoon about five o'clock that they were not going to play, uh, yesterday's game that was supposed to start at seven ten because there was, uh, heavy rain scheduled. Um, and uh, they just decided that they would play a doubleheader today. It's going to be a single-admission doubleheader. It'll start at 4 o'clock, and the second game will begin 30 minutes after the end of the first. And, of course, it's a lot easier to do that now uh, with these seven-inning doubleheaders, which I still hate. I hope they get do away with that. But uh, for now, that's what we're stuck with. So, uh, And the interesting part, Marcus Stroman, who was so angry Sunday, he was supposed to be the starter, and he was like, now i got to wait five days before I can pitch again. You know, he only threw nine pitches. Well, they have decided now that he is going to pitch the second game today. So he will have had a day off after only throwing nine pitches. He could have done that doing side work anyway. Um, but the original thought was they wanted to put him through his regular routine between starts. But now they've decided that he will pitch uh, the second game tonight. So the Mets uh, don't step uh, uh, all over themselves for the second straight day. They actually did the smart thing. Um, the... I guess the leader in the clubhouse for the Cy Young, and I just talked about how great Garrett Cole has been, the leader in the clubhouse right now for Cy Young in the American League has got to be Tyler Glasnow of the Tampa Bay Rays. Glasnow yesterday, seven and two-thirds innings, no runs. He only allowed two hits and one walk. He struck out 14. 14. 
and the Rays, who didn't hit either, end up beating Texas one to nothing, thanks to a uh, Willie Adamas home run off of Taylor Hearn with two outs in the seventh inning. That was the only run of the game. But Glass now uh, was just one strikeout away from tying the franchise record of 15 that is held by uh, uh, Chris Archer. But uh, so, and now Texas has lost for the third time in their last four games. I mean, they are a team right now that can't hit their way out of a wet paper bag. And when you look at this lineup, they should be hitting better than that. But they got no hit uh, last Friday by Joe Musgrove. They had been shut out two of the previous three games entering last night. Uh, they scored in their last six-game homestand. They scored uh, just 15 runs in six games and hit 193 as a team. So right now they are in a serious funk. And, uh, you know, we all know how tough this Tampa pitching staff can be. Now they weren't necessarily against the Red Sox. But Ryan Yarbrough, who's off to a tough start for Tampa, will get the start for the Rays in the game tonight. Kyle Gibson, who got lit up for uh, the Rangers in his first start, will uh, pitch better in his second start, but got lit up his first start. We'll get the start for the Rangers tonight as uh, they try to get things back on the right track. Um, I watched some of this one yesterday. You Darvish for the San Diego Padres was absolutely dominant, went seven innings, just three hits and a run. And the San Diego Padres beat the Pittsburgh Pirates 6-2, to two, as you would expect. San Diego is now 8-3. and three. Uh, The Pirates fall to 3-7. and You Darvish picks up his first win as a member of the San Diego Padres. And this was, look, he went 7. The Padres needed him to do that because they just had the situation uh, with their young pitcher, Adrian Morjan, who went down with an injury on Sunday after only getting two outs, and the bullpen had to throw eight in the third innings. So they were a little taxed, to say the least. So Darvish giving them seven last night was just what the doctor ordered. Uh, Will Myers, the big hero last night, drove in five of the six runs, uh, went three for five. He's hitting 350 to start the season, uh, and he has just been on fire. He's got a seven-game hitting streak, and he's hitting 370 uh, over these last seven games. And uh, so the Padres keep things rolling. Um We've got some other baseball stuff to talk about, but before we uh, get to that, um, I just wanted to mention that uh, Julian Edelman retired yesterday. He announced his retirement, interestingly, on social media. Now, word had come down earlier in the day that the Patriots were going to terminate his contract. He had failed a physical. He's had some chronic knee issues, uh, missed the last 10 games of last season. Everybody knew this was likely going to happen. Uh, but he posted a... Uh, a four-minute video on social media yesterday. I watched it on Twitter, and he said, I always said I'm going to go until the wheels come off. He said, and uh, they've finally fallen off. He said, due to an injury last year, I'll be making my official announcement of my retirement from football. Uh, Then he went on to thank everybody, and uh, and it was interesting, too. The Patriots were obviously involved. He was sitting in Gillette Stadium and uh, in a chair and, you know, the lights were on and, and the scoreboards were on and uh, he, he did it from the stadium. So it was interesting uh, way to do this. And look, the guys had a great career. And of course, people automatically start talking about whether Julian Edelman is a Hall of Famer. Now, in my mind, he's not. You know, I get that especially true Patriot fans are going to want to put him in there. But, you know, look, 
He's had he had some great moments for the Patriots. There is no question. He has uh, more postseason receptions and receiving yards than anybody in history, with the exception of one person, and that's Jerry Rice. Um, so, you know, he was obviously a great postseason performer. This is a guy that, uh, you know, caught 738 passes in his career, but never once did he lead the NFL in receiving. He was never named uh, to a first-team All-Pro team, you know, so he was... You know, so you look at these things, and now when when the Hall of Fame committee is meeting, it's yeah, he's done some great things, but you know, you never you never led the league, you you never got named, uh, you know, All Pro, and uh, you know, I don't I don't know that that's going to get him in the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, look, uh, and add to that. Uh, you know, in 2019, that he had to serve a four-game suspension for violation of the performance-enhancing substances rule. Uh, look, he came back and had a great year. He 74 catches, even though he missed four games. You know, uh, you add all those things together, I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. He was a great player for the Patriots. There is no question. I mean, he made a couple of plays in Patriots history that I'll never forget. The catch he made against the Falcons in the Super Bowl when they were – you know, coming back and in the fourth quarter, uh, a huge play where a ball uh, popped up into the air and then he grabbed it just inches before it hit the turf and kept the drive alive and allowed the Patriots to complete that 28-3 to comeback. Uh, That's probably the greatest moment that he ever had. Uh, who can forget the uh, uh, that play in the playoffs against the Ravens? I think it was, was it 2015, 2014, I think it was. Yeah, 2014. Um, when, uh, he took a pass from Brady and then threw a pass himself for a touchdown. I mean, that was unbelievable. Danny Amendola was running down the sideline and he throws a 51 yard touchdown pass. I mean, it was great. You know, he did a lot of the, he returned punts. Um, he played defensive back at times. Uh, you know, he, he did so many things. There's no question that he was a great Patriot player. But I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. You know, I know I'm probably going to get hate mail for that one, but, I, you know, he's he's in the Hall of Very Good, in my mind. And as Paul Aguirre just checked in, I agree, Paul. He is a Patriot Hall of Famer. There's no question about that. But there is he's not an NFL Hall of Famer. You've got guys that had more receptions than Julian Edelman by a lot that still aren't in the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, and I know, you know, you look at all the championships and, and I think that's what skews a lot of people thinking about it, you know, you know, because he was part of that Tom Brady dynasty, but he's close hall of very good, but not the hall of very great. It's 47 minutes past the hour. We got to take another break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to the wake up call on sports country. Welcome back to the wake-up call. We've got a few minutes to go before we get out of here this morning. Now, this next thing I'm going to say, I'm saying kind of tongue-in-cheek. So if you are a UConn women's basketball fan, please don't send me hate mail. But word has come down that UConn is getting a transfer. A uh, young lady by the name of Dorka Juhas from Ohio State. She is six foot four inches tall. 
Um, she has a couple of years of eligibility left. She is coming to UConn as a, gra- as a graduate student. She graduated in three years with a degree in psychology from Ohio State. This past year, she averaged 14.6 points and 11 rebounds a game for a 13-7 and Ohio State team uh, that would have made the NCAA tournament but chose not to. That was a self-imposed ban because of some recruiting violations that they had had uh, for the university. And uh, But she's coming to UConn as a graduate student. That should be illegal. I mean... And, you know, here's the thing, and I and I was a little bit surprised at this, in that Gino Oriema already is going to have to try to figure out how to get everybody minutes. I know Anna Makarad has, you know, transferred. Actually, it turns out Anna Makarad decided not to even transfer. She's going went back to Poland, and she's going to play professional basketball. So she's out of the mix. But he's already, you know, he's got... A great recruiting class coming in. He had Sailor Poffenberger, the a freshman that came in, you know, early this year, just because it wasn't going to hurt her eligibility. So she started a semester early to get a jump on things. And now you're going to add this kid, Juhas, from Ohio State, who plays up front. She plays where Aaliyah Edwards and Olivia Nelson Adota and Aubrey Griffin play. Where are the minutes going to come from? And there you look. You know he had to have some kind of a long conversation with this young lady to to about expectations. But good Lord. I mean, you know, now the one thing that she has is she can shoot the three a little bit. You know, something that uh, is not really in Aaliyah Edwards or Olivia Nelson Adota's uh, toolbox. Now, Nelson Adota will launch one every now and then. Uh, but Juhas will take the three more often. Didn't shoot it very well last year, but her first couple of years at Ohio State, she did shoot it pretty well. Um, but I just wonder how is he going, how is Gino going to keep everybody happy? And everybody is already ready to hand them the national championship next year because of, you know, the recruiting class plus, you know, another year of experience for these young kids. He played all this season. And now you had, you know, a veteran like this, uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, she's from Hungary, by the way. And, uh, you know, I, I just and she missed games. She was doing really well last year. She was averaging almost 18 points a game in the first four games of the season, and then she came down with a mild case of the coronavirus. She actually had to miss a few games. Came back in mid-January, um, but my goodness, the rich get richer, you know. And it's not it's not really what women's basketball needed right now was UConn to get another weapon. But my big concern, and the, I'll tell you the person I'm most concerned with as far as UConn goes, because there's a girl on that UConn team that I think could start for almost every other team in the country. And maybe I'm wrong, but Aubrey Griffin has has done some great things for this team. She has you know come off the bench and. Uh, changed some games for this UConn team. But she got buried last year with the way these freshmen played. She didn't get the kind of minutes. I mean, there's no question. Aaliyah Edwards took minutes that Aubrey Griffin was normally going to get. Well, Juhas is going to take those same minutes. If I'm Aubrey Griffin, I'm looking at this going, how the hell am I going to play next year? You know, if I'm Aubrey Griffin, I'm thinking about maybe trying to play somewhere else. And maybe that's what Gino wants. I mean, you know, you hate to say that. I don't think he's trying to push her out the door. But at the same time, you know, Aubrey Griffin is, uh, I think, the most athletic player that UConn has. Her, her 
rebounding ability, her jumping ability, her block shot ability. Just be, I mean, she can jump through the roof. You know, I think she is the most athletic player on that team, and, and I think that she is going to be looking in the mirror uh, today going, is there really a place for me on this team? Now, maybe being part of a championship team and being part of that UConn culture is more important to her, but if she wants to play, I don't know if it's going to be at UConn, and I, I feel badly for her because I believe that I think that she should get more time. You know, there have been times the last couple of years I felt she should have played more. Uh, so, I don't know. It, it's tough. I, I feel bad for her. Uh, hey, how about this? Uh, young lady from uh, Texas was pitching North Texas State. Hope Troutwine this weekend did something that has never been done in NCAA Division I history. Softball pitcher threw a complete game, threw a perfect game. Perfect games have happened before. This was the ultimate perfect game. Part of a seven-inning game, part of a doubleheader. 21 up, 21 down, and all 21 of them were via the strikeout. She struck out every single batter she faced. She never even went to a three-ball count. Think about that. She never even threw ball three to one of these batters, and she mowed down all 21 of the players from Arkansas Pine Bluff. Unreal. Uh, you know, I'm sure it's probably happened in high school. You know, maybe it's happened in Division Three somewhere. But it, as far as anybody can tell, it has never happened in uh, Division One. It was such a, uh, a such a momentous occasion that the Major League Baseball uh, website actually had it on there. Uh, 21 up and all out by the K. It was kind of like the old days. Remember uh, uh, the, uh, what was it called? The House of David. They used to have like three players, and they could just beat the hell out of people. Satchel Paige once had, had everybody on the field sit down in a Negro League game because he knew they weren't going to be able to hit him. <laughs> it was, uh, now, I don't think she was that kind of cocky, but uh, still uh, pretty impressive. Uh, one other quick note before we get out of here. Uh, Joe West, country Joe West, 66 years old, longest uh, tenured umpire in the major leagues, uh, was suing a former player, Paul LaDuca, uh, who was a former catcher, uh, was actually a four-time All-Star. I think he played for the Dodgers and a couple of other teams. Well, Joe West had sued him because it was a defamation lawsuit because on a uh, podcast, um, LaDuca talked about he was catching Billy Wagner in a game uh, against Philadelphia. It was while he was playing for the Mets. And he said that Joe West called three straight batters out on strikes. And he claimed, LaDuca claimed, and said that uh, the reason that uh, he did that, that Wagner got the calls, was because the pitcher had allowed West to drive his 1957 Chevy. <laughs> and LaDuca also claimed he had been ejected like 16 times in his career, and most of them uh, were by uh, Joe West. Well, West fired back on, uh, you know, number one, I didn't even work a game, uh, a Mets game the season you're saying this happened. You know, he was able to prove the fact that he never worked the plate. Uh, and that Wagner didn't even pitch in the only Mets-Phillies game that he did work behind the plate during 2006 and 2007. Uh, and, and by the way, he's, it was shown that uh, he only ejected Paul LaDuca 
once in his career. Leduca had been ejected eight times in his career and only once by West. Uh, and West said, look, you know, he has, uh, you know, cost me money. You know, he has ruined my reputation. Uh, you know, he maybe has ruined my chance to get in the Hall of Fame by saying things like that. Uh, that, uh, you know, he lost appearance and endorsement income because of that. Uh, so the court allowed, uh, awarded him $500,000 in damages against Paul Duca. So pay attention to what you say, folks. Even if it's a podcast, you know, you can't go around uh, defaming people. It's going to bite you in the rear end. And good for Joe West. Good for Joe West. I mean, and uh, he was able to prove it. And uh, Joe West, not a great umpire, in my opinion. At 66 years old, it's probably his better days are behind him. But, uh, you know, and he's probably got another year or two before he does hang it up. But uh, he is certainly one of the more colorful characters in the umpiring crew of Major League Baseball. And now he's $500,000 richer, thanks to Paul LaDuca. That's going to do it for us here this morning. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of The Wake Up Call. We leave you this morning with some music by Harry Connick Jr. I love this song. It's called Like We Do. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country.